Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Holy Father, we come to you not because we deserve it, but because you have made a way possible through Christ Jesus for us to be enabled to approach the throne of grace which you've established by giving your Son. For you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Frumism. Frumism, it's a little bit like Lutheranism, like Calvinism, um, a lot of different things, a lot of isms. We call it Adventism. But Frumism is a different form of Adventism. It's rather new to the scene, and we're going to explore what that means. Some of you may not know who Frum is and what his contributions were to this denomination. And depending how you look at this, at this history, how you understand what was given to us as a people, whether it was all from God or simply just a little bit from God, depending how you understand that, you will either highly appreciate the work of Frum, or you will recognize how that has damaged the work of God. I want to read this first. 2 Timothy three fourteen to 15 But evil men and seduce, seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving, being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of, of whom thou hast learned them. Of whom do we learn these things that we have been given? Are they of men? Prophecy came out of men, right? It came of God. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so with that in mind, we need to realize that the truth that we have, any ray of light that we possess, comes from whom? From God. It does not come from men. It does not come from men who devise these things in their imaginations, or who determine ways that they can improve on God's truth. It comes directly from God. Leroy Froome. Who is Leroy Froome? Leroy Froome was born on October 16th of 1890. So he would have been alive right around the time, as a, as a child, that the 1888 messages were being proclaimed in Adventism. He would have been a child at that, uh, at that point, uh, growing up uh, into, the, into this message. He was born in Belvedere, Illinois. He studied at Pacific Union College and Walla Walla College before graduating from Washington Training Center. Froome was the first associate of the General Conference Ministerial Association from 1926 to 1950. He also was the founding editor of Ministry Magazine in 1928. From 1950 until his retirement in 1958, he was a field secretary of the General Conference assigned to research and writing. 
He was considered to be the leading historian and apologist of the church at the time. And so, Froome had this background of being a person of research, a man of study. And his leading contributions, as we'll see here going on a little bit, I'm jumping ahead, but it's a little bit of a, of, of a, of a preview, is that he, t he wrote the book, The Coming of the Comforter, Comforter, in 1928, which promoted the Trinitarian view of the Holy Spirit. That's undisputable, everyone admits that. That that's what that book promoted in 1928, the Trinitarian view of the Holy Spirit, something that had not been previously taught in Adventism, only outside of Adventism. But how could he accomplish this? Could he do it on his own? I believe not. And this is why this little bit of context is the importance of understanding who were the leading men at the time in the church besides Mr. Leroy Froome. The 1919 Bible Conference this split began to develop among the leadership of the Adventist Church. There was divisions about the King of the North and how it should be taught from Daniel, the, the book of Daniel and the Revelation. But another key discussion was the question of the deity of, deity of Christ. Whether Christ had an eternal, eternity of past or a co-eternity co with the Father. Whether Christ was co-eternal with the Father or whether He was at some point in eternity, that is from eternity, at some point in eternity past, was Christ begotten. These were the views that were being contended at the 1919 Bible Conference. And we see here in the left column that those who supported the eternal deity, that is the co-eternity with the Father, were W.W. W. Prescott, Dan Anderson, H.C. Lacey, and G.B. Thompson. The people who maintained the pioneer view that Christ was begotten at some point in eternity past, at some time in eternity, were people like C.P. Bowman, T.E. Bowen, L.L. Cavanis, W.T. Knox, and C.M. Sorensen. And then there were those who were at the, on the fence at the time. Those on the fence were A.G. Daniels, W.E. Howell, John Isaac, E.R. Palmer, O.A. Tate, Charles Thompson, W.H. Wake, wake him, and M.C. Wilcox. These were on the fence, and you can imagine that many of those who were on the fence ultimately ended up taking sides, and likely many of them took sides with the people on the left side of the column, with W. Prescott, W.W. W. Prescott, more than likely. Now, there were a total of 36 delegates, but not all of them stuck around. Some of them went home early. And so, that shift, that division in 1919, that discussion created this division among the leadership. And it created also an environment in which changes to, to our fundamental principles could be brought in. So we're going to go to 1925 now. We read, this is a letter from Leroy Froome to Herbert Camden, Herbert Camden Lacey. Remember, he was one of the ones in the left side of the column. A letter in April 13, 1925. I think that the new light will confirm the essentials of the past, though that does not mean that all the details must be retained as our founders lay them down. 
And so the new light that he's finding, he says, will confirm the essentials of the past. But that does not mean that all the details will be retained as the founders laid them down. So frumism is kind of my message. And what is frumism? Well, frumism number one is, not all details must be retained. But the question is, details of what? Of what details are we talking about? Details of present truth. Details of sound doctrine. That's what, that's what uh, is at stake here. Regarding bishops, Paul writes the following. Holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught. As who hath been taught? The bishop. The bishop is to do what? The elders to do what? Is to hold fast to the faithful word any way differently than he's been taught? No. As he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Who are the gainsayers? What is a gainsayer? It's an opponent. Someone who opposes the message. So the elder is to be faithful to the word just as he was taught. Not to deviate from the way he was taught. And by doing that, he'll be able to, to exhort and to convince the opposers. And that's the teaching of Scripture. That's the methodology that Paul taught. And immediately we see from the outset that this is where Froome began to deviate. He believed that we could bring new light, but you could get, derail, deviate from the details. That's what he expressed in the letter to Lacey. In Deuteronomy 12.32, we're told, What things soever I command you, the Lord says, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereunto, nor diminish from it. So not to add or to diminish from it. Leroy Froome in 1920s decided that new light, which really new light that, that was bring, coming in, it comes across as something catchy, something new, but it really wasn't anything new. That's what we have to understand. It wasn't anything new. This had been in Christendom, the Trinity, original sin, whatever, whatever doctrine, the, the, the atonement issues, or whether it was the Christology issues with the nature of Christ, whether it was prophetic issues, any issue you can, you, can, you can guess at is not really new, right? Solomon says there's nothing new out of the sun. So this is nothing new. They had, this has been around in, in different conflicts and controversy throughout the history of Christendom. So this whole concept that we're bringing new light is not really new. Because these are positions that have been established since the days of Augustine, since the days of the Council of Nicaea. That we're talking over... Over 1,500 years before this period. 1,500 years before. And so, to call it new light is not really, doesn't make sense. Because it's not new. It's an old teaching. The question is, is the teaching biblical or not? That's the question. Is it truth or is it not? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Because there's nothing new about it. And it include, that includes our teaching as well. Our teaching is nothing new. We don't have new light, per se, when we're talking about the one true God, or when we're talking about overcoming sin, or when we're talking about the atonement in the heavenly sanctuary. Regardless of whatever we speak of, it's not necessarily new light. Why? Because it's there in Scripture. It's there since the days of Moses, written down for us. So it's nothing really new. 
We simply find a new aspect of it. But the, the things that were coming in, in fact, can be clearly shown that were not new because they were in existence and being taught by just about every church around the block. Okay? The Trinity was nothing new. It was, you can go walk up and down, whether it was in, you know, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, or whether it's in, uh, in Angwin, California, or wherever you're looking at, you can find a church that taught that doctrine. It's not new. So it's a false idea to say this is new. And so he's saying that not all details must be retained. Now we don't have to teach things as they were taught. Not everything is, not all details must be retained. Moving on from 1925 to 1926 and 1928. Now he makes this statement much later in his life. I believe this was in the 60s that he made the statement. But he says, looking back, May I make a frank, frank personal confession? He asks. When back between 1926 and 1928, I was asked by our leaders to give a series of studies on the Holy Spirit covering the North American Union Ministerial Institutes of 1928. I found that aside from priceless leads found in the spirit of prophecy, there was practically nothing in our literature setting forth as sound Bible exposition in, the tremendous, in this tremendous field of study. There was no previous pathfinding books on the question in our literature. I was compelled, he says, I was compelled to search out scores of valuable books written by men outside of our faith. Those previously noted for initial clues and suggestions to open up beckoning vistas to intensive personal study. Having these, I went from there. From there to where? Where did he go? Into the Trinity. That's where he went. He couldn't find enough Trinity material in, in the pioneer Adventism. He couldn't find it. So he had to go outside. He had to go outside. And he didn't have to look very hard. Because like I said, if you walk around any, any town to any church and you ask them the question, what do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Now some people are not, not as informed, not as, not as studied on the issue, but they'll lead you to somebody who has studied it, and they'll give you the full enchilada with meatballs and cheese. It's not vegan. So... This creates an issue, though. This creates a fundamental problem, though. For him to go outside, it creates a problem because of what happened in 1843. What happened in 1843? Well, the 1844 um, uh, message of Christ's return was, was about to be fulfilled, as they understood it, as the Millerites understood it. And a man by the name of Charles Fitch, I'm going to turn the slide here. A man by the name of Charles Fitch, uh, preached a sermon called Come Out of Her My People. And what he did in that sermon is he, he developed the concept of Protestantism as well as Roman Catholicism. So you have Protestantism and Catholicism. Before that it was just Catholicism. But now he brought, he brought Protestantism and puts it in the limelight as well with this passage. That, it, that both of these constituted 
a, the Bab Babylon. And he made an appeal in 1843. Babylon is fallen. Come out of her, my people. Why did he do this? He did this because, oh, the churches were shutting their doors to the proclamation of the advent of Christ. And anybody who pro proclaimed the advent of Christ was expelled, excommunicated, censured, and, you know, all the rest. Regardless of, of uh, moral status or integrity. They were thrown out of the churches. And so this is, at this point, Charles Fitch realized these people, these churches, are rejecting the Advent message. And because they are, they are part of the fallen Babylonian churches. And so in 1843, it was declared that the churches that reject the Advent message are fallen. And this was affirmed in the spirit of prophecy. Not just by scripture study, but also in the spirit of prophecy. It was affirmed. And so we've understood that. And so for us to go digging for new light, as it were, right? In the fallen, Babylon of, fallen Babylonian churches, that is completely contrary to the reason we existed. See, because in 1844, when the disappointment occurred, if there was error, if there was, if there was no coming of Christ in any sense of the word, if there was no cleansing of the sanctuary in any sense of the word that took place in 1844, then it was reckless, irresponsible, and immature for people like James White and people like Joseph Bates and J.N. Andrews and many others like them and higher medicine. It was reckless and irresponsible of them to start a new continuing movement. They should have gone back to the Baptist churches, the Methodist churches, the Reformed churches, the Connect Christian Connection churches. They should have gone back to all those churches and said, we were wrong Please forgive us. We want to come back into the fellowship. And it would have developed a very natural relationship because they left friends. They had old-time friends in those churches. People they grew up with in those churches. So it would be very natural for them to go back and say, we were wrong, I'm so sorry. But they could not. Why? Because they knew Bible truth. Right? And they knew at that point that the message that was proclaimed in 1843, was still true as, in our, as true on October 23rd of 1844. Well, a few days, they developed the idea by actually November of that year. But the idea that the church, that Christ was now the most holy place, and that confirmed that the churches truly are fallen. Right? It confirmed that the churches, uh, Protestant churches are fallen. So, the first idea of frumism is that not all details of true sound doctrine must be retained. The searching for books, that we must search for books and truth in the fallen churches of Babylon. Then, as around the same time, 1928, he says, May I state that my book, The Coming of the Comforter, was the result of a series of studies that I gave in 1927 to 1928 to the ministerial institutes throughout North America. You cannot imagine how I was pummeled by some of the old-timers because I pressed on the personality of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. He says, you cannot imagine how the old-timers pummeled me about that. Remember, he was only 38 at this point in his life. He was a little year younger than me. Um, and he had these men 
who were in their 50s and 60s, 70s, who had been around for a while. And they understood the foundations of our faith. And they saw what his teaching was doing. And they did pummel him. They tried to help him turn his feet from error. But remember, he, did, he wasn't alone in this. He had the support of W.W. Prescott and the sympathies of A.G. Daniels, who was conference president, or had been conference president. So he says, some men deny that and still deny it. This is him talking 1960s now, this, uh, referring back in the 19, yeah, to 1928. But the book has come to be generally accepted as standard. And that's what happened. You have enough men in leadership who put forth these, these ideas, who support them, it'll pass. But, the scripture says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. So, the problem number three with Fumism is, Press on past the old marks, past the old paths. Do not walk in them. So the first is, not all details of truth must be retained. Present truth must be retained. Number two is search for books in the fallen churches of Babylon. Search for new light in, those, in the fallen churches of Babylon. And number three, press on past the old paths. Do not walk in them. 1928, Froome had his most significant contributions to denomination. He, his first contribution was the book, uh, The Coming of the Comforter, about the Holy Spirit. But the other contribution that was extremely significant was Ministry Magazine, which he became the founding editor of that publication, which was mailed to all the Seventh-day Adventist minister in North America, and I'm sure abroad as well. And this was circulated, the, these ideas, these new theologies, new ideas were the vehicle for circulating the new theology, these, these publications. Now, I was asked one time, my brother, my dad and I were discussing um, whether, I, I posed the question, and I don't know what made me do this, but I used, to, I used to say like, you know, we would watch Mark Finley, we would watch Doug Batchelor, and we would watch, you know, Dwight Nelson and people like that. And so we were asked the question, if you wanted a position of influence, in the church, would you rather be in Mark Finley's shoes or a leading professor at the seminary? And they're like, oh no, Mark Finley, Mark Finley. And I said, no, because if I'm a leading professor at the seminary, I change the minds of leadership. And I will have a much deeper rooted impact than just me going around preaching to people. Because if you can, you see there's there's people who are committed, and there's people who are not as committed. That's just a fact, right? People who are committed and zealous for something they're not. If you can work on those who are committed, who are giving up their time and their life, to change their minds about something, it will have a greater impact on the church than coming in and putting in a great theatrical, I mean, I'm not theatrical, but great charisma, you know, and, and impressing everybody with the eloquence of preaching. That has a short-lived lifespan compared to affecting a leader's mind. And so those are the chief contributions because the lay leadership and the clergy leadership were impacted by the book and the clergy leadership were impacted by the magazine. 
Now, a third unintentional contribution is the, a letter correspondence between Willie White and Leroy Froome that happened in 1928. And this is by that quote, it's not up there from, from Leroy Froome, that's uh, from, from Willie White, it's from Froome actually. So the, January 3rd, 1928, Froome sends an email to Willie White. January 8th, five days later, he responds to it. He says, Dear Brother Froome, says Willie White, yesterday's email brought you a letter of January 3rd. In it, you present some queries calling for a reply from me. You refer to a memory of a conversation with me in which you think I remarked that Mother said with reference to some of her writings, my work is to prepare. Your work is to shape it up. So that's what uh, Froome is asking Willie White. Do you remember that comment where you told me that, that your mother said that my work is to prepare and your guys' work is to shape it up? And so I was trying to get this out of, out of her son, Willie White. <coughs> Willie White says he has no memory of such a thing. And he says, You seem to think that if there is such a statement as referred to in your letter, it would be a benefit to some of our brethren. I cannot comprehend how it would benefit them. Possibly, you can make it plain to me. So Willie White's like, I don't understand how that could be a benefit to anybody. To that, that their work is to shape it up. <laughs> can you explain that to me? Because <laughs> I don't get it, Willie White's saying. He goes on to say <clears throat> that his mother... She had many times direct instruction from the angel of the Lord. Let me repeat that. She had sometimes, occasionally, no, many times, many times direct instruction from the angel of the Lord regarding what should be omitted and what should be added in new editions. So she had direct, direct instructions, not occasional. And so my work is to prepare, your work is to shape it up. He says that, no, nothing like that. It can be endorsed. Number four, a fruitism ideology, shape up the works of the pioneers and the inspired writings. And we'll see how this develops in the 40s. We're now still in the 1920s. This is the Roaring Twenties, isn't it? And I find it fascinating, in 1919, they had the Bible conference. That was just after World War I. You'd think, everybody would think, be thinking, apocalypse, the world is ending. But what is everybody thinking in the leadership? Let's change our direction. Let's change our doctrines. And I get it. It's because, they say, of modernism. They were trying to deal with modernism, and they found themselves in opposition to modernism, often being shoulder to shoulder with the conservative evangelicals. And so they, they wanted to have a more, a more firm connection with those conservative evangelicals. So that's why they were doing a lot of these things, to develop a rapport. So far, we've seen that his work is that not all details of truth must be retained. Searching for books in the fallen churches of Babylon. Searching for new light in those books in the fallen churches. Number three, to press on past the old past, to not walk in them, and to shape up the works of the pioneers. That's what he wanted. <clears throat> we read, the problem with that is, Peter tells us, as also Paul... I put Paul in there, as also, well, he was referring to Paul, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. 
Are some things hard to be understood in the writings of Paul? Yeah? How about being baptized for the dead? Is that hard to be understood? That's kind of hard to be understood, right? There are things that are hard to be understood. Why you wrote that? Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do the rest of the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. They rest. What does it mean to rest? Right? To pull, to yank, and to take. That means actually, the literal word means to pervert language. To abuse and pervert language. That's what the word actually means. So the, uh, the unstable will abuse and pervert the language to, and the other scriptures to their own destruction. The Bible is a poem. 1930. Right? The Roaring Twenties are about to come to an end. We're heading now into the Great Depression. You would think, you would hope that people would be more earnest about hastening the coming of the Lord and would, would want to amend their ways, to walk in the old paths. But that's, that's not what's happening, unfortunately. Back in the spring of 1930, A.G. Daniels, or Arthur Daniels, the, for more than 20 years, president of the General Conference, told me, this is room saying, room speaking, told me he believed that at a later time, I should undertake a thorough survey of the entire plan of redemption. Well, that may not be a bad thing, right? I was, to, I was a connecting link between the past leaders and the present. But he said, it is to be later, not yet, not yet. Possibly it would be necessary to wait until certain individuals had dropped out of action, which means they died, before the needed portrayal could be wisely brought forth. This is from Movement of Destiny, page 17. <coughs> from writing himself. So what is he saying? He's saying, you've got to wait. You're going to take on a whole revision, but wait till certain people drop out of action. It'll be too controversial to do it now. You see the foresight of A.G. Daniels and Prescott? I mean, they're working things out. They're realizing, okay, we can't do it in our lifetime, but we can... Um, how do you call it? Groom. We can groom somebody into taking up the work for us. And that's what's happening here. Froome is being groomed in 1930 by A.G. Daniels in the spring of that year. Froome was in number five. Wait until the opposition dies. If you can't do it now, just wait. 1931. Leadership continues. And we have this statement in the, in the yearbook being put in, statement of faith. That the Godhead, or Trinity, and that's the first time that was introduced into, into the fundamental principles. I mean, the word Trinity had been thrown around on occasion in, in the certain publications of the church. Not that it never was in there. It was. You could find it at times. It wasn't very commonly used, but it was used at times. But now it's in the fundamental belief. Fundamental principles. That the Godhead or Trinity consists of the eternal Father, a personal spiritual being, omnipotent, omnipresent, um, omniscient, infinite wisdom and love, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the eternal Father, through whom all things created and through whom the salvation of the redeemed host will be accomplished, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. So what do you got? What do you have the Godhead consisting of? One, two, three. Right? The Godhead consists of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's the idea. 
Now, this is different than 1888, the previous version, the one before it. 1888 is different. Listen to this. There is one God, a personal, spiritual being, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, infinite wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, and mercy, unchangeable, everywhere present by His representative, the Holy Spirit. So one God, who is described by all the attributes of divinity and holiness, and He's everywhere present by His representative, the Holy Spirit. And then number two, it says that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is biblical, right? That's what Paul says. One God, one Lord. And so this is following the biblical teaching of the Godhead. This here is saying there's a Godhead. And in that Godhead, there's three, three mystical beings. It's quite different. Quite a different uh, stance now. This was put in by a man named Wilcox, F.B. Wilcox. Uh, F.B. Wilcox was widely respected as a student of, of the Bible and of Spirit of Prophecy. So because of his general respect and because he was so well loved by everybody, this just flew right in into the yearbook because he was highly esteemed. We are to be no respecters of persons. That doesn't mean we're not unchristian to people. It doesn't mean that we're rude to people. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that just because somebody that we love and respect teaches something, doesn't mean that we have to believe it too. We can respectfully disagree. We can say, brother, I can't go there with you. 1931 to 1957, there were vocal one true God believers. They included people like J.S. Washburn, C.S. Longgrace, and W.R. French. J.S. Washburn, um, he was a leading minister in the Iowa Conference. He was, he was a minister. I'm going to read his quote here. For many years, my father was a leading minister in the Iowa Conference, he says. In 1884, I began my work as a minister in that conference. My father was Elder Washburn. Then upon my ordination, I became Elder Washburn also. But we were two persons, not one person. Now, would it be fair or true to say that in writing up a history of the Iowa Conference, every mention of Elder Washburn applied to myself? Emphatically, no. It would be utterly false as is the statement that every time in the Bible where the word Jehovah, or Lord, appeared, it meant Jesus, and that Jesus and the Father were one person. Several thousand times it applies to the Father and not to the Son. Of course, that voice would die out, die out by 1950. William Robert French he was a missionary to India in 1910. Upon return, he was at, in, at a missionary college in Canada in 1918-1922. Emmanuel, which is today Andrews University, 1922 to 1929, he was a teacher. At Washington Missionary College in Washington, D.C., from 1929 to 1936. So he was a teacher. He was a preacher-teacher. And uh, he taught at Pacific Union College also from 1947 to 1950. And then he taught as a, went to Phoenix, Arizona, apparently, too, as a pastor in Phoenix Central Church 
from 43 to 47. So quite, a, quite a few places, been India and throughout the United States. He is known to be a man who never wrote anything down. And that's a kind of a disadvantage in a sense. <laughs> he says, I never write anything out. I don't want the devil to know what I'm thinking. <laughs> that was his, uh, his thing. So he had influence to some degree in, in his teaching, uh, obviously, throughout the denomination, but he didn't write much. In the early 1940s, the topic of the Trinity was hotly debated. And it was reported that he said, somebody else wrote it down, okay, not him, <laughs> that Christ did have a beginning. That's what he would emphasize. Christ did have a beginning. That's Elder Washburn. Another man, Benjamin G. Wilkinson. And this is in 1944. Now, Wilkinson was a doctorate of theology. He, a doctor of theology. He, was, he wrote the book, Truth Triumphant. And, and he had teaching positions throughout the, the Adventist Church. <clears throat> he wrote in Truth Triumphant, page 92, An erroneous charge is circulated that all who are called Arians believe that Christ was a created being. That is, isn't that true today too? That if you believe that Jesus is begotten, which is what a lot of what Arians were known for, they would say, we don't believe in the brother God, we believe in the son of God. They believe we don't believe in an unbegotten son, we believe in a begotten son. And so, and that's what our pioneers taught essentially. But Arian, it's hard to pin down what he believed because his writings have been destroyed. We only have a handful of things from Arius. And so he says that that's probably an erroneous charge. He says, Where the teaching of Arius were such as are usually represented to us or not, who can say? Philip Limborch doubts that Arius himself ever held that Christ was created instead of being begotten. In December 1955, Froome writes a letter to Ruben Figure. Now, Ruben Figure is the GC president at the time. 1950s. And Figure wrote, wrote to Figure about an incident in the 1940s. He says, I was publicly denounced, Froome says. I was publicly denounced in the chapel at the Washington Missionary College by Dr. B.G. Wilkinson as the most dangerous man in this denomination. So Wilkinson publicly called out Froome at the chapel. He says, you are the most dangerous man in this denomination. Another man, Charles S. Long, Longacre, sorry, Longacre. He was a, a minister that had been around for a long He preached about the one true God message. He was vocal from the pulpit. Uh, he was also present at the 1919 Bible Conference. If you look at the list, he was there in the middle column. And so he was among those there. He says, Christ did not in his own righteousness possess equality with the Father until he gave it to him, until the Father gave it to him. He was made equal with the Father, by the Father. This is exactly what Christ himself said concerning his relationship to the Father. He said, as the Father hath life in himself, so he hath given the Son to have life in himself. John 5, 26. This is deity, by, deity of Christ by Longacre. And so this was all developing. 1940s. 1940s is the period in which we had World War II, right? But our church had its own war, had its own controversy. It was, it was the, the hottest period in church history regarding the Trinity. 
the hottest period of debate regarding the Trinity. 1944. So while we, all those men I mentioned were, were defending the one true God, while they were promoting their, the message of the pioneers, here's the work that was being done. Remember what we said about the uh, waiting for the old to drop out and removing the last visages of Arianism out of our publications by Libre Froome? Well, now it's taking shape. In 1944, Daniel and the Revelation are chopped up at least 18 times. So the removal of the last standing visage of Arianism in our standard literature was accomplished through the deletions from class, the classic Daniel and the Revelation 1944. And the lingering sinful nature of Christ's misconception was remedied by expunging the regrettable note in the revised reading of Bible readings for the home of 1949. Okay, so this is from Wounded Destiny, page 465. He says, yep, we cleaned things up. We brought in the new light, so to speak. In 46, Froome compiled the book Evangelism. The compilation of evangelism with careful, calculated use of certain LOI statements, many not even complete sentences, to paint a picture that she was supposedly Trinitarian. It was done by Froome, Roy Allen Anderson, and Miss Louise C. Clausen, under the encouragement of Elder Branson. So this was accomplished by those three persons Picking, cherry-picking through the spirit of prophecy for anything that sounded Trinitarian. So, Frumism number six. Remove vestiges of truth from books endorsed by God and manipulate inspired writings to conform to the new light and false doctrines. In 1849, uh, that's what he was referring to, but that actually did happen. 1849... D.E. Reebok attempted to remove any non-Trinitarian or so-called Arian or semi-Arian statements from Bible readings of the home and the nature of Christ, having taken a fallen nature, not, an, not the nature of Adam, which is now being taught. The old, the old teaching was that Christ took a fallen human nature. He came like as we are. He partook, as the brethren partake of flesh and blood, he partook of the same, right? Hebrews 2.14 tells us that. And so, they removed those things. This couldn't have happened any sooner. Mrs. White wrote in 1910 to Elder Prescott and Daniels. She says, I have seen that Satan would have been greatly pleased to see Elder Prescott and Daniels undertake the work of a general overhaul of our books that have done a great work in the field for years. So the, Satan, so the great enemy, Satan, would have been greatly pleased to see this overhaul take place. To review, Frumism in its first principle is not all details of sound doctrine must be retained. That number two, that we can search out for new light, as it were, in the fallen churches of Babylon. That we must press on past the old paths and not walk in them. That we can shape up the works of the pioneers in inspired writings. And that maybe we have to wait at times for the opposition to die out, to, you know, fall out of action, to die. And number six, when that has taken place, you can remove visages of truth from books endorsed by God and manipulate the writings and inspiration to conform to the new doctrines, the new light. And that's precisely what has taken place. Precisely what has taken place. This statement was just so predictive. The enemy of souls 
has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was take place among Seventh-day Adventists and that this reforma reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engage in a process of reorganization. And that's exactly what is taking place. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God in His wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. And that's what's been taking place. The principles have been discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. And that's exactly what's happening today. They are accounted as error. We were told that to our face. That's the old error. Not new, not light. Old error. Your errors. The Bible tells us, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We have been placed in the world for a special purpose, to sound the trumpet, to give it a peculiar, specific sound, that trumpet. That trumpet began to be sounded in 1843. We must continue to sound the trumpet that the churches are fallen and that we are to follow the scriptures alone. We don't need to advance into an ecumenical movement, into an ecumenical relationship with the world around us. We need to be the men who are watchmen and the women who are watchmen who tell them of the danger that's coming. We don't need to pacify people in their sins. We need to warn them of the impending danger. I pray we will take up our call. Standing on the Platform of Truth